Let's have you all grab your Bibles and turn to the last book. It's called Revelation. Revelation, we're in chapter 1. I know so many of you because we're a pretty close church family, but there are some faces out there that I still have not uh, had a chance to just open up my arms and give you a big hello for the family. I am glad that you're here. We started last week a really cool new series called Breakthrough. And if you're like me, you're tired of churches that are always trying to have the next cool thing. Look, we're a pretty normal group of people. We call it Breakthrough because that's the Greek word for revelation. That's how we would say it today. We would say that when John, who was one of the best friends of Jesus, was really old, he was in his 80s, Jesus broke through and revealed to him something that he'd never seen before. You know, back in the 90s, I was kind of going through a lot of pressure and stress. And this book went out on the market. How many of you probably bought the Magic Eye book? Anybody buy one of these? Or have you ever seen these things? They were kind of cool so 25 years ago, okay? But those of you that are younger, follow me here. You would look at this thing, and it doesn't look like a picture. It's two-dimensional. Because if you were too close to it, just like when we get too close to all the pressure in our life, you can't make it out. But if you move back a little bit, your eyes would sort of kind of see a three-dimensional picture emerge. They are kind of cool. You can go, go online, Google Images, and check a few out if you've never seen them. Would you please stand as we enter into Revelation chapter 1, and let's see if we don't have this experience today of going from a two-dimensional, oh, my life is full of pressure, to seeing what's really going on. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, that means pressure, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face it was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I've got the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. 
As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Church of God, let's pray. Father, this revelation, this breakthrough that John had 2,000 years ago, thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus to meet John and for having John write down in a book his experience on that Lord's Day, on that Sunday. Father, would you bring a breakthrough of revelation into our reality even now? Send your spirit. We want to see Jesus different today, Lord. We want him to break through, his love to break through into our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, with your Bibles open, please be seated. If you want to follow along, the title today is simply, Look, He's Alive. Revelation is a theology for the visual learner. It's like your iPhone where you look at the photos. It's like Instagram. I know some people learn with the ear. Some people learn by doing. But this book only works if you wake up your imagination. Nobody ever got a picture of Jesus. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You don't know what he looks like. John, though, his best friend, it's the only portrait that we are given. But I'm going to tell you, it's pretty wild. Wasn't it when I read it? We're going to look through it today, but the title is simply, Look, He's Alive. In 2016, my wife and I were celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary, and she always wanted to go to the Greek Isles. I went along with her and I said, I'm going to do this as long as we get to go to the island that John received his revelation on. And she hooked up a little cruise. And here we are at Patmos. And what do you do when you get to Patmos? You get a moped. You put your girl on the back and she holds on for dear life. And you take off. So we, here we are at Patmos. And if we go to the next slide, it's a small island. And we went way up to the cave that the church fathers said he received the revelation and there's a picture of what John would have been looking out on where he sees the sea on this little island called Patmos. It was so cool to be there. I have many memories that I was there. But I wonder if you ask yourself, why was John, who was a really good friend of Jesus, on an island in the late 90s? Why would John have been on an island? Here's why. In 92 A.D., there was a terrible emperor who did not like Christians. In fact, 40,000 Christians would be killed under the reign of Domitian. 40,000. Some of you are Christians here and you know your Bibles. Paul wrote a lot of letters to a dear young man named Timothy, just a pastor like me. Timothy in 92 A.D. was beat to death. It was not easy to be a Christian. John, because he went to these seven churches that were about 40 miles off the coast of Patmos, was sent by Domitian away from the churches. All the people that he lived his life with, he was sent away. Why? Why would he be sent away? Because in Ephesus, and Elaine and I had a chance to visit there, Domitian had a temple. Here's a picture of the ruins. You had to go to this temple, if you were part of the Roman Empire, and do something quite simple. Walk in, get a pinch of incense, and say, Caesar is Lord. That's all you had to do. But see, John couldn't do it. Pay Caesar taxes? Yes. 
pay Caesar respect, yes. But pay Caesar worship, no. Only Jesus deserves total allegiance. And that's why John says in verse 9, look, I'm John, I'm your brother. In fact, I'm your partner in the tribulation. Can you imagine 40,000 Christians killed, Timothy beat to death. John is now off on an island because Domitian doesn't want John influencing. And he's going to say, I get it. I know what the pressure is like. In fact, I'm pushed away from my church families. Now, we read the word tribulation, and it triggers all kind of weird ideas. Tribulation simply means terrible pressure. In fact, the Greeks would have explained it this way. It's a sense of rubbing together. Everybody take your hands, put them together, and rub them real fast. We do this when it gets cold. That's called philipsis. It's the Greek word, and it's going to be used over and over. You know when you get into your life, and you are seriously under pressure. In fact, this was also a term that was used not just to create friction from pressure you couldn't get out of, but it was like laying down and someone puts on you a stone so heavy on your chest that you can't breathe and you can't get out from under it. Slipsis. John says, listen, I am over here on Patmos. I'm in my 80s. I love all of you. I know we are under pressure and I'm your partner in it. I get it. Pressure. What pressures are you under right now and you cannot get out from under? It's okay to admit it, by the way. Church is the last place you want to fake this. Some of you have undergone, even in church experiences, pressure. And by the way, those of you that don't typically do church, thank you for coming. You will find with Jesus that he shows up in the midst of the pressure. Well, it says he was there on the Lord's day. That's an interesting term because if you were living at this terrible time of persecution, did you know one day a week was labeled in Rome Emperor's Day? Oh, yeah. Domitian wanted you to do the little pinch the incense and say that he is Lord, but he also wanted an entire day that you remembered him. Not for the Christian. The Christian said, look, we know that the people of God have always rested on day seven. But our God came and became man. He died. He rose again on the first day of the week. He is our Lord. And we're going to gather on the Lord's day. Imagine poor John. He's on the island. He's away from Christians. He so much wants to gather. I wonder, be honest here. Do you treasure the Lord's day? Or do you sometimes do like I do? Oh boy, it's going to be a long Sunday. I do it too. The Lord's Day, the day of the risen Lord, the people of God gathered. Do you treasure the Lord's Day? Oh, John, it was on the Lord's Day. He had the breakthrough. In fact, it doesn't always happen at church. And listen, most of the time you come to church, it's not explosive. Growing under pressure is like a slow, creeping vine. Some of you have known me going on five years. And you're like, Howard has hardly grown. But I've grown a little bit. It's imperceptible. It's not explosive. John had another Lord's Day. How many Lord's Day did this old man have but on this Lord's Day? I think he was probably praying for the churches. What else would he have been doing? Just missing them, saying, oh, if I was with the people of God on the Lord's Day, he gets a breakthrough. It says he's, on a, he's in the spirit, almost a trance, a 
You know, this young lady was telling us that she just simply looked at a flower when she went on this retreat. She's looked at a million flowers, but when she looked at that flower, there was a breakthrough. Have you had those moments with God? Oh, I hope you have those moments when you gather in church and it happens in a song. Or it happened in first service, we were simply doing the Apostles' Creed. And when we said that He is risen, a lady in the congregation said, Hallelujah! She had a breakthrough. Sometimes it's in the middle of a sermon. Sometimes it's when you're walking out and someone walks over you and looks you in the eye and you got nothing out of the Lord's day, but they noticed you're in pain and they just give you a hug. And there's a breakthrough. On the Lord's day, he goes into the spiritual trance of sorts and he is going to be getting this revelation. What if you came on the Lord's day with an expectation from God that a curtain between heaven and earth was suddenly pulled open revealing to you Jesus. Uh, He had been there all week long. Don't think he's not alive. But we often put him on the side of our life. And in the midst of worship, he gets shifted to the center. So there's John. He hears this loud voice. It's like a trumpet, not a harmonica. Those are cool. Not a banjo. Love it. A trumpet. Why a trumpet? A trumpet has force, authority, clarity. Don't you need a Jesus who has such clarity when he addresses you? He hears this voice, and he's there, and the voice says, write what you see to the seven churches. Here I am, by the way, on Patmos, and I, I looked at this and I thought, what an unflattering picture my wife took of me. I mean, I looked flabby, overweight, and I even asked her, I said, we're going to be showing the church these pictures. Do I really look like that? And she said, listen, I've been married to you this long. Yes, you do look like that. You are that. Now listen, we're going to get a picture of Jesus. I know we all scribble in our minds what we think he looks like. John has the curtain revealed. And we have to now say, this is who Jesus really is. Not what we think. Not flattering ourselves. We need to receive who he really is. The sermon's simple. The identity of Jesus we're going to see through this picture. Then we're going to see that it has such an impact on John. And it's going to have an impact on you if the Spirit moves. Lastly, Jesus gives an interpretation. We do not have to interpret our crazy lives, especially when we're under pressure. And those of you that know me, I am a man that does not have a great compass. I often get lost. And I need a vision of Jesus to say, I am here and I will direct you. I often have a fog or a frustration that takes over me. And I so need a breakthrough. The first point is going to be our longest. Some of you that don't do church, bear with me. Because the second point will be shorter. And the third point will be the shortest. But I think you'll find the entire breakthrough quite interesting. Number one, the living Jesus reveals his identity. God wants to be known. Look at what he says in verse 12. John says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle, the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Not all of you are into art, but imagine going to an art museum. You walk in, you see this amazing portrait, and it's got a label. It's got a name, a title. Here is the title that John gives this portrait. Son of Man. Have you ever said, Jesus, I'm thinking about what to call you right now. I'm going to call you Son of Man. 
I would bet most of you do not refer to Jesus Christ as the Son of Man. But John looks and he says, Jesus looks like a Son of Man. And that would have evoked in John's life a backstory. See, the Bible is an entire story. This is the last book. You have to see the entire story. Daniel, which is an entire book in the Old Testament, had a prophecy and he said, someone's going to come in the midst of pressure and here's how you're going to know who it is. His name will be Son of Man. Let me read it to you from Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel said, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like, read it for me, Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, this Son of Man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus arrives on the scene. Everybody's like, who is this carpenter who's now going around and healing people, acting like a kingdom's broken in? Did you know that over 80 times he gets a label, a name? That's the Son of Man. But do you know who labels that name onto Jesus? Imagine a sticker and you slap it on his back. Jesus labels himself when he meets people. 77 of the 80 occurrences saying, I am the Son of Man. You ever know that about Jesus? He didn't walk up and say, hey, the name's Jesus. He would say, Son of Man. If you went to a Starbucks and Jesus ordered a coffee and they said, what should I put on the cup? He would not put Jesus. He would put, can you put on there, Son of Man? Son of Man, it's simple. It just means He's a human being like you and I. Jesus knows our pressure. Oh, does He know our pressure? When he gave himself this label, Son of Man, everybody would have known that Daniel predicted a judge, a ruler, someone who had total dominion that could walk up to the Ancient of Days God and not even kneel. What kind of a Son of Man can do this? This was an early picture of Jesus, God becoming man, to come and to save. So now, we know the title of the portrait. It's going to go quick. Follow me. Eight descriptives are going to come. It's like going and just kind of your eyes are going to dart all over. How did John take it all in? I'm glad he did. Here's the first thing he says about this amazing picture. He says that Jesus was wearing something. You leave here, you forgot to get something at Walmart for your Easter lunch. You see somebody wearing scrubs. You're probably thinking they're a nurse. Maybe a doctor. Or you see someone with a long lab coat. Maybe that's a doctor. Maybe that's a pharmacist. Our clothes are typically our first identifiers. And John says, look, I've given you the name, but let me tell you how this person dresses. Revelation 1, chapter 13. He's clothed with a long robe. And there's this golden sash around his chest. If you read the Old Testament, every time the high priest is described, he's wearing a long robe with a sash around his chest. You mean to tell me that Jesus Christ, Son of Man, come to be ruler and judge, is the priest? Priest. It's pontifex in Latin. It means bridge builder. Of course. Who can build between two sides of a canyon when you have God and you have man, the God-man? Of course he's the priest. 
Jesus is both God and man, but you only had the sash up high as the priest if you were finished doing the work. The priests that had to go ahead and kill the sacrifices wore the belt to keep all their clothing together. But when the work was done and the sacrifice was finished, you could put the golden sash on and you were the high priest. You mean to tell me, Son of Man, Jesus is my high priest, the bridge between God and me, and the work is done? Yes, because the judge did not come to judge you. He came and said, I will not judge you for your sin. I will be judged as the sacrifice so you can walk over that bridge and be with my Father forever. What a breakthrough for John, especially in the midst of so much pressure. Where was the priest? Did you notice the priest was not outside, kind of looking in at John's scenario? He wasn't above looking down. Many of you have a vision that God is above looking down. It says that the high priest was right there in the middle of the stress and the mess and the press of your life. If you would have walked into the temple at that time, the temple had an initial place where a sacrifice was done. And then there was a curtain. If you walked through the curtain, there were these lampstands. Because it would be dark in there because there was another curtain. But it wasn't because there was a priest who kept putting oil in the lamp so that it was bright. That priest was there in the middle. Okay, we move from the clothing. Look at verse 14. The hairs of his head were white like wool. White as snow. John's trying to find words to say, look, there was a dazzling whiteness. And why do we often look at the whiteness of our hair? Because there's a dignity that only accrues with age. There's a lot of churches today that are going to pull Easter off with kind of the cool, younger crowd. My proudest moment of this worship service was when this old man over here, Bob, walked up and prayed for us. When you hear an older person pray to God, do you know how often they have prayed for the sick? Do you know how often they have begged God to get through something hard? I know Bob and his wife have been dealing with the flu for a week or two. That white hair, when I look out, Mike, I see, I see the white hair out there. Dignity accrues with age. And have you ever thought about Jesus as having white hair? We think he's this, this little carpenter that has brown hair. No, he's being described, remember, because he walks up to the ancient of days and he doesn't kneel. Jesus is the God-man. Jesus has existed, God has existed before He became man for eternity, in eternal existence. Jesus has love that never ends. Ancient of days described, this is who God is, there's purity. When you look at Jesus, you are looking at God head on. It's amazing. Let's look at His eyes. Verse 14. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Flame is pure, but it's also purifying. Oh, this one. When I was reading this, I was thinking about my mom. You might not believe this, but when I was growing up, I was not the most well-behaved kid. And my mom knew it. My mom would look at me, especially when I was in church. Oh, would she look at me. And she would kind of look at me, and she, it was like she was x-raying my motives. She knew exactly what I was thinking, exactly the next bad thing I was going to do. Moms, I don't know where you get this. Sometimes my mom would look at me, look like she was drilling a hole through my forehead. Because she had this ability, and I think we see this with Jesus. 
He doesn't look at you. He doesn't even look into you, studying and sifting your motives. There's something so amazing about Jesus. He can see right through you. He can see right through you. It, sometimes it reminds me a little bit of the Lord of the Rings in this Sauron's eye. How many of you have read these books and there's this eye of Sauron that's always, and people are hiding from it. Is this, though, what we are to see when we think of the eyes of Jesus? How can this picture transfer into your life right now? Just trickle into your life right now. Here's how. When you look at the eyes of Christ, you need to realize that he also has flashes of compassion. He is the judge who has already been judged on the cross. So he looks at you and you want to cover. You want to run and duck for cover. But he has love for you. Don't you see in his eyes a flame of favor fastening on you? Oh. Sometimes I think, God, when you look at me, I've got a sewer that runs through my heart. And he knows it. He knows that sewer. And I, I know he's looking at me and I say, can it really be that you see me and my sewage and you still want me? Sometimes I think Jesus looks at me he's repelled by my sin. Now, he is repelled by sin. But don't you see that he is actually attracted not to my sin, but to the fact that when I am sinning, he is attracted and not surprised by my need. Oh, he knows the substance that somebody in this room possibly started using for the first time this week or started using again. He knows the sexual sin that you engage in. But he's more like a lifeguard, not there to be a life coach or shake his finger at you or stare at you with his eyes to shame you. He's more like a lifeguard that says, I have created you and you are drowning under the pressure of living a certain life of sin, and I see you, and by seeing you, I am going to jump into the midst of your mess to save you. That's what happens with these eyes. They are pure. They are purifying. And look at his feet. Verse 15. They're like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Now, you have to really know your Old Testaments well to get this one. Because in the Old Testament, there's always these big emperor leaders and they make statues of themselves, but they're described as having feet of clay. How many of you have built a kingdom on something good and you think it's going to stand, but you know that it, like a deck of cards can come down? The feet of Jesus are fully grounded. They are stable. They can bear the weight of his kingdom. They're not shaky. They are stable. I don't know if you're like me, but there are times in my day where I feel like an astronaut in zero gravity. What do I do in this relationship? What do I do with this addiction? What do I do with this grudge? What do I do with my finances? What do I do with this physical problem? And I feel like an astronaut in zero gravity trying to ground myself. Jesus is grounded. He looks us in the eye and he says, I am grounded. My feet know the direction that I am leading you. I am grounded. And then there's a voice. Don't we need when we're in pressure, not just a picture, but someone to speak to us? The phone call. Somebody talk to me when I'm hurting. Listen to this voice. The voice was like the roar of many waters. You've got to be in John's shoes. He's on an island. Every day he's walking around. He's surrounded by water. He's hearing the crash of the surf up against the rocks, whamming the shore. Have you ever been to a waterfall up close? 
And you're with a friend and they're like talking to you and you're just like, I have no idea what you're talking about because I can't hear you. The waterfall is so powerful. You do not hear the other voices. When Jesus breaks through all those crazy voices, and I got all kinds of voices in my head. All the voices are drowned out by the power of the roaring voice. And that voice, I'm so glad it's described as many waters. It's powerful, but the voice of Jesus is also peaceful. Have you heard the peaceful voice? And then his hand is described, verse 16. In his right hand, now lefties, we don't want to leave you out. The right hand is typically where you display your strength. All right? So it's a metaphor, right? In his right hand, he's holding seven stars. Jesus will interpret for that, us for that later. Look at verse 16. What comes out of his mouth? A sharp, two-edged sword. This is, for me, one of the coolest things. The Romans loved their swords. They had little ones to kind of sneakily get you. But they had a big one called a ramphaya that was given to the cavalry and they made it sharp on both sides because it had only one purpose. Get on your horse, charge into the enemy, and use it as a sith. It was so sharp and it had only one use. Kill. Anything that sword touched had to die. Jesus, are you nice today? Well, coming out of my mouth are words so powerful they can kill. You ever thought about this? We do not serve a little Jesus on a sentimental Easter. We serve the Son of Man who speaks to us in a world of voices. Every time the Word of God, every time it is spoken or read, the Spirit of God needs to remind you it is a massive Scythe-like sword. They are the word of the word of God. And they cut in two ways. You will feel whenever you read scripture or hear somebody talk about God, you'll feel guilty. We can't downplay it. We all deserve, because of our sin, condemnation. But you need to realize this is a double-edged sword. When Jesus speaks to you, he is willing to tell the truth about your condition. But he does it so that he can then declare the irresistible healing grace of his undeserved commendation. Sometimes when you're in the midst of your sin and you feel so dirty and you've just done it, you need to look at God and say, how do you see me? And you need to hear him say, innocent. But look what I've done. Innocent. No, I'm guilty. What you did is inexcusable, but I received on the cross the sword. I call you, oh, you can't call me, I I would never call myself that, innocent. Oh, that we would listen to the words of Jesus. And by the way, death does not have the last word. Let me talk to so many of you that kind of do church or do church every once in a while. You wonder why Jesus seems so far, why you can't get out from under the pressure Follow me with this little picture. I've thought a lot about you. A lot of you have hearts that are like a loaf of baked bread, but it's been sitting out for a while. You haven't been sharing it. And God puts his word like a knife on that bread, and you're like, come on, Jesus, where are you? The way that Jesus goes from being out there to in here is you need to let the word slice through. It needs to tell you the truth over and over and over. 
about your real story. And you need to also let it now cut through. Oh, will you stay under the Word of God? Look at verse 16. His face. This is the warm part. Is like the sun shining in full strength. Oh, the sun. You can't look at the sun for a few seconds without turning away. Jesus doesn't look at you and say, you better prove to me your morality and your merit. He looks at you like the sun, asking nothing of you and just radiating grace, giving you warmth, the face of Jesus. Now, I told you that that was going to be the long part. Oh, go back to this portrait, please. Go back to this portrait over and over and over. But notice, secondly, this portrait had an impact on John. John, who would have spent three and a half years with Jesus. John, who's now late in his 80s. And by the way, those of you that are older, you still have breakthroughs. Some of you are not going to have your most amazing time with Jesus until you are really old. He is in his 80s and he says, When I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet though dead. What an impact. He fainted with fear. You want to know why? Because when you see Jesus... It is not good advice. I'm glad you can finally see me. Here's your list of things to do. When you see Jesus in all of His beauty and all, all of His grace, you, you die. You, you faint. You, you, you realize that you do not need good advice or a ladder to get up to God. Jesus comes to John. He's exiled. He's on an island. He's really old. He's lived some life. He's under pressure. And Jesus reveals Himself And John simply collapses. I don't know how many in here have thought much about Christianity, but Christianity is not you climbing up to God and saying, I love you, God. It is God climbing down to you in Christ. And literally, Christ laying His life down like a stretcher. And you must collapse into His arms. Because Christ will carry you through His work of His death and His resurrection up to the Father. Some of you have never met Jesus because you've never thought you can collapse. The good news of the Gospel is collapse onto the stretcher of Christ and He will carry you. Of course John faints, but he knew Him three and a half years. No, he meets Him in his old age and he has the same experience we need to have. Can I still collapse into the arms of my dear Savior? I like what Jesus does. Puts a hand on his friend. When you know someone who's going through a rough spot of pressure, last thing you need to do is talk. Boy, do I struggle here. I want to tell you a verse. I want to tell you how the Lord's going to do something. The hand. One of the best breakthroughs of coming to church is putting your hands on each other and giving a hug and putting that hand out. When John looked up and saw the hand of Jesus, you know what he saw. There was a hole in that hand. I've fainted to the ground. I've collapsed. Can Jesus relate? There's a hole in my hand. The judge has been judged. I am wounded forever so that you will be healed. Oh, I know you feel that you're dead. I know you had a vision of me. But my hand is on you. I heal you. And now John's ready to listen to him say something. Jesus assures him, By the way, I'm the first and I'm the last. Boy, that's an amazing statement. I'm the first and the last. I wonder if so much of our fear, because he says you can't get scared, John. You cannot live your life under fear, under pressure. I'm showing you me because you can't live like this. Stop fearing. But he doesn't just say stop it. He says, listen, here's the reason why. I'm the beginning and the end, the first and the last. 
How many of us have awesome things in our life? Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's your popularity, your money, your grades. Everybody liking you. Your health. Make that first and it's not going to work. You'll be like a child that builds this block tower and you'll be desperate and scared that someone's going to go knock it over if you put first anything but Jesus Christ. I'm not downplaying how awesome things like money and family and health and learning things. I'm not downplaying any of that. What I'm downplaying is when we make it first. Or worse, we use Jesus because honestly we're using him because our goal is what's last. Jesus says, you are not going to be fearful if you will make me first and last because that's what I am. Oh, what a breakthrough. What a breakthrough for those of us here that get so scared, get so anxious. I so often will dress rehearse catastrophe that's not going to happen but a, day, a few days later. When I look at Jesus, he puts his hand on me and he says, Stop dress rehearsing for a few days from now. It's not here. I am Lord. I am Son of Man. All authority has been given to me. Stop dress rehearsing. Fear not. But if I... I've been through it before, Lord. It's going to happen again. No, you cannot live that way. I am the first. I am the last. And then he gives the zinger on Easter. Look at verse 18. I'm the living one. I am not dead. I am alive in your life. By the way, I'm alive forevermore. I've got the keys of death and Hades. Don't you need, when you are scared, when you are imprisoned by so much fear, just to see a simple set of these? Just walking up and realizing in the hand of Jesus, we have a set of keys. What's a key do? A key controls something that's massive. When we were in Europe, we had a little Airbnb. And there was the biggest door I had ever seen. And I walked up that door and I thought, how in the world am I going to get in? In this little key. A little key swivels open a massive door I never would have opened my own. He says, listen, I need you to be encouraged because I actually have the keys to death, which pretty much freaks people out, and to the place of death. I've spent most of my life with unbelievers that don't do church, and they don't think Jesus is real. But I've said to them, and they've been honest enough, are you scared of death? And they'll say, Howard, look, I didn't know I existed before I was born. And now I'm born and I know I exist. When I die, the lights will go out. I'll be just like before I was born. But I'll go, wait a minute, I want you to own this emotionally. Like when the lights go out, because science says that there never was anything that really brought you together but chaos, and there's never real meaning in the future, which means your middle really doesn't have much meaning, you're telling me that when the lights go off, that doesn't scare you? And that typically will help them to say, okay, honestly, I kind of like existing. <laughs> I don't want to not exist. In fact, it kind of does get me scared. Jesus looks at us and says, wherever you are, look, I got the keys. I took my right hand and I pushed death off of the throne. I now sit on the throne and I'm living. And I'm asking you to allow this breakthrough because I have the keys to death in Hades. Are we not so fearful because we think that he doesn't have the keys, that we think we have to control 
the very things that will give us life. Look at the last one. It's quick. The living Jesus gives us the interpretation. We need to stop trying to interpret our pressure. He says in verse 20, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the churches. Look, an angel is simply a messenger. This could mean a lot of things, but when the angel showed up and said, listen, when Jesus was a little baby and the Son of Man was being born from a woman, the angel said, listen, I bring good news of great joy for all the people. I think the angel are simply people that tell you on the Lord's Day the gospel. There is enough bad news going around, and the church's center is the good news. Every time you hear a minister message the message, this is what God has in his hand. He's not given up on us. And where, where is Jesus? Remember, he's in the midst of these lampstands. Lampstands. He gives us the interpretation. That's the churches. The Jewish menorah, or that candelabra, was one of the most common symbols of the Jewish people. Jesus comes into the Jewish story as the Son of Man. He interprets the lampstands as Christianity, the full and final form of Judaism. Notice, though, that the lampstand, the church, is a lampstand. It is not the lamp. We, as a church, do not have to source the world with all of how wonderful Jesus is. We simply need to be a lampstand. We need to receive the grace from God, from Jesus, who is here amongst us, and realize that He is alive in the middle of our mess and stress and pressures. Jesus is here in the middle. Next time you show up to church, there is so, oh, if only the curtain could be opened, Jesus is in the middle of our church tending the lampstands. Yes, we're struggling. Some of you are under such severe stressors. Oh, I know you are. Those stressors appear to be running your reality. They are not. I know they're pushing you around. But Jesus is standing in the middle. I'm going to ask our elders to come forward because Jesus commanded us to have a meal that will nourish our life as they come forward in our worship team. We don't usually do this at our church, um, ask people that are here to place their faith in Christ. And here's one of the reasons why. We're a very low-pressure church. If Jesus reveals himself to you, he will do it in his time. But as I prepared this today, I thought, you know what, there has been so many times where someone says, I so want to lay down on that stretcher. And part of being a messenger is to say, well, go for it. So as we prepare our hearts, some of you may actually want to use these words, maybe not today, but maybe in your life, maybe you could simply say, Dear God, you are light and I have darkness. You are life and I'm surrounded by the pressures of death. You are love and I'm so disconnected socially. I'm sorry for the way I've sinned against you. With your help, I want to turn from the darkness and the death and the disconnection to Jesus. Just like John turned that day. Thank you that Jesus, your Son, has stooped and become a Son of Man, suffered on the cross. He was sacrificed. The high priest sacrificed. He stood and stands alive again on the far side of death, clinging the keys. Thank you that He's loved me with every drop of His blood.
paying the full price for my sins. I believe in Jesus, my Lord and God. I recognize him now as my Prince of Heaven who's come to win me back. Please receive me as your child. Fill me with your Spirit. Be my loving Father forever. In Christ's name, I lay down on him fully. Amen.